Romans chapter 1. We, uh, the first 17 verses is the introduction or the salutation, sometimes referred to the salutation of the, of the book. Uh, we saw Paul as he presents it. He's both, uh, there's a traditional aspect to it, like the first seven verses. And then he gets rather personal in the verses 8 through the 17. Uh, that isn't, he doesn't, not that he doesn't get personal in other books that he's written, but it's specifically here, it's very personal from him speaking from his heart to the Romans. Uh, we noticed here, uh, we were able to identify the primary theme of the book of Romans, which is the righteousness of God. And there's a secondary theme to that, of course, is the justification of man. So those are the two things as, we, as you read through, as we read through the book of Romans, I hopefully you're reading through that, you'll pick those things up, the righteousness of God and justification of man. Uh, but the, the, the main uh, thing that really stands out in these uh, first 17 verses, the thing that just grabs your attention, is it begins with the gospel. It says Paul separated unto the gospel, and it ends with the gospel. There in verse 16, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then verse 17, for by it, that is by, by it, the gospel, by the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. So you, you have this emphasis on the gospel. We saw the person of the gospel, of course, is Christ. The power of the gospel is God. The purpose of the gospel, salvation. And of course, the promise of the gospel or the provision of the gospel is righteousness. So, the, you, if you, it, it, so I'm just trying to sum up as quick as I can those first 17 verses. You, you, it is just phenomenal, the depth, as we said before, of the book of Romans, the, the, the breadth the, and depth, or it's deep and wide. And we could see that even in the first 17 verses. So now we come to the, the uh, body of the book, which is this first section. Okay, Now, now from chapter 1, verse 18, down to chapter uh, 16, there's different topics that he is addressing that all fit under that aspect of the righteousness of God. And this, and this first division that we are running into is first is Romans chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. This is the condemnation of man. Uh, and it answers this question, is the whole world really lost? Okay, I'll give you the Reader's Digest answer is yes. Okay, but he, he develops that concept in this section of Romans. Romans 1, 8 through chapter 3, verse 20. Is the whole world really lost? The condemnation of man. Paul, Paul brings before the bench a holy and, and just God, uh, and he brings four different categories of people to answer that question, is the whole world really lost? And uh, this in this section... Uh, Sorry, I'm stumbling a little bit. I mixed, mixed up my notes a little bit. Uh, in this section, you, you may have heard of the for phrase total depravity. Okay? Total, total depravity is really what's going to be a doctrine that's, that's contained in this, even though we may not necessarily read it there. It simply means this. Man, in and of himself, is homeless, Helpless and hopeless. That's total depravity. Total depravity is the fact that in and of myself, I cannot get to God. 
I have no way of getting there. I can't work myself there. I can't be good enough. I can't go to enough church. I can't read enough Bible. I can't get there by doing things. I'm totally depraved. In and of myself, I'm hopeless, helpless, and homeless. I just, and I know that's alliterated, but it's just the way it came out. <laughs> so, here we are in the Condemnation Man, chapters 1, verses 18 to 3, uh, 320. He's going to present four categories of people. This, I'm just giving you an overview of this section. I'm not going to preach this, but I want you to picture this in your mind now. In the section we're looking at today, in verses 18 to 32, we're only looking part of it, the unbeliever who never heard the gospel, he's condemned. This is what we often refer to the heathen or the pagan. And, and here's, here's, the, here's the thing. When we think of the heathen or the pagan, we think of that uh, individual in the darkest part of Africa. But the truth of the matter is there are some dark places in America that some people have never heard the name of Jesus unless it was in profanity. But they never knew where that name came from or why it was there. So the unbeliever who never heard the gospel condemned. Then in chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, here's the second group. This is the moral man. Uh, he thinks he, he, he has impressed God. So in 18 to 32, we have the heathen. In verses 1 to 16, we have the hypocrite. Because they feel like they've impressed God. Well, God ought to let me in. I'm, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm impressive. So the moral man thinks he is in Prescott. He's condemned. He's totally depraved. Then in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, you have the religious man. He thinks he's born in the kingdom. Specifically, this is, this is a reference to the Hebrew. So you have the heathen, you have the hypocrite, and you have the Hebrew. They, they believe that they uh, were born in the kingdom. They believe they have special privileges. And then finally, in chapters or in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. You have the Gentile. Uh, actually, this would be all of humanity. The Gentile thinks he's good enough to get in. I'm, I'm just good enough. I'm not a heathen. I may or may not be a hypocrite. I know I'm not a Hebrew. I'm just good enough. But the point is, all have sinned, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. They're condemned. Total depravity. So that's an overview of this next section. Again, as we talked about our bus trip that we're taking through the book of Romans, I don't know exactly how long that'll take us to get through that, but that's where we're going as we get into chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, the condemnation of man. Now this morning, uh, this is, I feel like I'm a little uh, um, teachy this morning, so bear with me. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, without excuse. And I put part 1 because there's three parts to this message, or maybe there may be six parts, but there's one part for sure. This is the first part. Um, for the wrath of God is revealed against all. And you'll see there in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you see the conclusion there in verse 20? so that they are without excuse. See, there's no excuse. They're without excuse. 
And I want to I address this section really with three questions. And I, I, was, you know, I really wrestled with this because I wasn't sure how to do this, but I think this will help get a sense, get really pull out the meaning, I, I hope, from the text. What is the wrath of God? I mean, we talk about the wrath of God, but what is the wrath of God? How is the wrath of God revealed? And thirdly, then, where is the wrath of God directed? So as we, as we look at this, I'm going to try to unfold it this way. So first of all, what is the wrath of God? <clears throat> well, let me back up a minute. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins with the wrath of God. I've used this expression before, and you know, you know what it is. The priority of position. The priority of position, it means what comes first. For instance, why didn't he start with the love of God? Wouldn't that be a little more friendly? Or surely with the grace and the mercy of God. But instead he starts with the wrath of God. It's not that God is angry or furious, but the wrath of God is just much a part of his, as part of his, an attribute of God as righteousness is. It's just that we don't talk about it. And so he begins the priority position, and I think it's significant. We've all we're all done talking about, or not done talking about, but he's talked about the gospel. And what's the first thing he launches into? The wrath of God. It would be easier, don't you think, to preach on God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You say, well, I, may, I think I've heard that statement. That's correct. Because that is what is being preached today. God loves you and wants you to have a wonderful life. Or, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Actually, sometimes it gets a little complicated. There's enough of truth there to get you mixed up in a lie. But he begins to record this section is offensive. It's in fact, if you read on in chapter 1, uh, you'll find it even discouraging. And you might even say, it's not fair. Let's just skip this section. Let's not talk about the wrath of God. It's, it's, it's not necessarily heavy, but it's confrontational. There's things that are mentioned here that aren't mentioned in polite conversations. But yet, it's all part of speaking of the wrath of God. Sometimes, Scripture is a candle. Other times, it's a blowtorch cutting through steel. Sometimes, Scripture is warm and inviting, like a fireplace on a cold night, and other times, it's a raging forest fire. Sometimes, Scripture tosses a firecracker of truth into our hearts that rattles our windows and jolts us to being awake. Other times, it sends armored tanks rumbling and crashing into the living rooms of our hearts and minds. This is the wrath of God. It's not a firecracker. It's a box of dynamite. And it should rattle us to our core. There is nothing 
warm and fuzzy about the wrath of God. So, first question. What is the wrath of God? There are, there are uh, two things I, I want you to notice. There's, it's a divine at- attribute and it's, and it's a divine activity. Just real quickly, because I, I want to move on to the activity part of it. A divine attribute. Just like righteousness of God, as we talked about last week in verse 17, is an attribute of God. An attribute is, is what makes God God. It's his essence. It's, it's, it's a, defi- a defining, identifying characteristic. It's what we call an attribute. That's it's, what, it's what makes God God. Just as much as God is love, he also is uh, Mercy. Just as much as God is mercy, he's also grace. Just as much as God is grace, he's also wrath. I thought, and listen closely, uh, Charles Ryrie, I think, captured this concept better than anybody I've read concerning the inherent nature of God being part of that being wrath. He says the various uh, attributes of God are not component parts of God. In other words, you have a car, and you have a left front tire with a rim, and you have a right front tire with a rim. You have a light bulb. You have a solenoid. You have an air conditioning unit. Well, these different components make up your car. The point is, he's saying is, these are not separate component parts of God. Each describes his total being. Love, for example, is not part of God's is not part of God's nature. God in his total being is love. While God may display one quality or another at a given time, no quality is independent of or permanent over any others. Now listen, whenever God displays his wrath, he is still love. When he shows his love, he does not abandon his holiness. Hopefully you can, you can get the aspect there. It's, it's totally concept. Even though wrath is one of his attributes, it's not the dominating attribute because he's still love. These, these, are, these are not com- separate components. And, I, and again, this is mind-bending, but it's the total. This is God. We just don't talk about the wrath of God. So it is an attribute. It's an activity. In Scripture, you're going to find there's two words used that are translated uh, wrath or anger. These two words are thumas and orge. One of them, I've got a little asterisk by, and I'll explain why in a minute here. The word thumas, we get thermometer, thermos, thermostat. It is red hot, uncontrolled, the furious outburst explosion. To be in a panting rage, to be in the heat of violence. I always picture in my mind this raging 2,000 pound bull pawing the earth, snorting out its nose, eyes glowing red, charging at you. This is thumas. This is fury. Some have even likened it to a temporary insanity. All reason and attempts of being reasonable are gone. It is a violent reaction to strike, a burst of profanity, 
reckless, reckless, foolish reaction to a real or imagined injury. It's never used of God. Interesting. And always used of man. Orge, which is the word used here. Paul actually uses four, uh, ten times in the book of Romans talking about the wrath of God, and he always uses the same word, orge. Orge is a reference to a settled, determined response. Not a reaction, but a response of a righteous God towards sin, towards evil. It is an abiding hatred of evil. Even as he says in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, God is a just God, and God is angry with the wicked every day. See, it's an abiding hatred of evil. <clears throat> but, although he's under control, it's a response. There will be a response to the perversion of his holiness. Just, just because this is a controlled response doesn't mean there's not going to be response, and it doesn't mean that the hammer isn't going to fall. It's just that it's it's uh, reasoned out exactly. Let me give you several examples. Three Old Testament examples. Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 8. The flood. God's wrath was restrained until the day when man's cup of wickedness was full. And God judged the earth. It took hundreds of years for Noah to build the ark. In the New Testament, he's referred to as a preacher of righteousness. People heard the message. People were invited to join them. But only eight souls were saved from that flood because they believed God's message. And in Scripture records for us that they entered the ark and God shut the door. God's wrath. It was building up. It certainly was restrained. But when it came, it came as a flood. Genesis chapter 19. God unleashed his fury against the perverted cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He actually sent a witness there who was not a witness. His name was Lot. It tells us in the New Testament, it vexed his righteous soul day after day after day. And yet their cup came full to full, and only four souls were rescued from that city. Not because of belief, by the way, but it in that, it even demonstrated God's mercy because of promise that he had made to Abraham. And of those four souls that are rescued, one of them looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. Giving you another example, Exodus chapter 14. God dealt with Pharaoh and his people through the ten plagues. And even in that, he restrained himself from giving the full fury of his wrath. And finally they let the people go. But once the people are gone, they, they, he changed his mind and he sent the Egyptian army after them. When Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's army pursued Israel into the Red Sea, God released the water and the army all drowned. He released his wrath. It was a reasoned, specific judgment. He was restraining. He was merciful. But God's wrath will be accomplished. 
we've always said or thought, God has a unique way of carrying out his justice. You know, you may think, you may sit there and think, well, I did this and I did this and I'm, I'm going to keep on doing the way I want. Or you looked at other people and you said, why doesn't God judge them? It's not up for you and I to reason why God doesn't judge them, but I can tell you this, when he does, it'll be exact. It'll be measured. And it will be hurting. God's wrath. Let me give you a New Testament example. God's wrath. The measured response. Probably in Matthew 27, the most graphic demonstration of God's wrath is when he poured out his divine judgment on his son on the cross. And I shared this statement with you before. It just has gripped me over the last few weeks or last couple months. Christ exhausted God's wrath. He, God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ so he wouldn't have to pour it out on us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Christ exhausted God's wrath. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to bear on the cross your, the full weight of your wrath that would have been placed on me. So we talk about the wrath of God. It's a divine attribute as well as a divine activity. Second question. How is the wrath of God revealed? First of all, there's what we call or refer to, and maybe you've heard this before, general revelation. In fact, you'll see it in our text here in verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Well, how has God shown it to them? It's manifested in them. Well, we see a little explanation of that, or a clear explanation of that, when we get over to chapter 2. Look down at verse uh, 14 in chapter 2. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these also, these although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing themselves. That's your conscience. It has been made aware on your conscience. How do you, how does unsaved men how does an unsaved man know right and wrong? I mean, even the unsaved know that it's wrong to steal. Even, though, even, even the unsaved know that it's wrong to lie. How do they know that? Even the unsaved know that it's wrong to commit adultery. How, how, how do they know that? It's been stamped on their conscience. Inherent in their mind, they know these things. This general revelation that every human being has access to. General revelation. The conscience. When a man lies, steals, cheats, commits immorality or murder, he knows, without ever having read the book of Exodus, that he has violated some unknown objective standard. This sense of right and wrong, this sense of guilt, 
It originates in the conscience. God's revelation that makes a man aware of morality or immorality. God has written on their hearts. He's provided a conscience that is the voice that teaches all of humanity right from wrong. So general, general revelation, general revelation, the sense of right and wrong, first of all, from our conscience. This is available to all men. The second is creation, found in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. For since the creation of the world, creation naturally lends itself or leads mankind to an awareness of a creator. No matter how remote that tribe of Indians in the Amazon jungle may be, no matter where you travel, where it be around the world or into outer space, there is a loud, persistent declaration of creation, and creation demands a creator. Let's put it this way. So you believe in evolution. Let me just tell you this. It takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to be, believe in creation. And let me say this about evolution. Where did it come from? Even if you believe in evolution, where did it come from? Creation demands a creator. Well, it began with an explosion. Well, then where did the explosion come from? See, creation demands a creator. In a town of Hall of Copenhagen stands the world's most complicated clock. It took 40 years to build and cost more than a million dollars. It has 10 faces, over 14,000 parts, and is accurate to two-fifths of a second every 300 years. The clock computes the time of day, days of the week, the months and years, and the movements of the planets for 2,500 years. Some of the parts of this clock will not move until 25 centuries have passed. This is true, by the way. I'm not making this up. The more you know about the clock, the more you are led to say that the designers were quite intelligent to be able to design something so sophisticated and intricate and complicated. You would never assume that it just came together over a million years. You would never think that of this clock, or an explosion took place and appeared this clock. In the same way, even Charles Darwin once admitted that the complexity of the design within the human eye is enough to cause him to consider a creator. Such an incredible creation demands the existence of an incredible creator, even as David said in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. So, general revelation. We, all men, have a conscience. Now, some, as we know in Scripture, conscience are seared, but they still have it. And all men are made to available, all men, as creation itself. Then there's what we refer to, and you've probably heard this too, special revelation. This is the explicit communication from God. You probably own a copy of it. It's called a Bible. It's the Word of God. You may have more than one copy. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can take it and take it home with you. You don't have to pay us for it. It's free. 
But that's special revelation, a direct communication from God. While general revelation, creation and conscience, allows humanity to know about God, special revelation allows humanity to worship God. See, either to know about God or to know God. See, general revelation, you can know about God. But special revelation, the word of God, is so you can know God. You need to know that general revelation, though through creation and conscience, are not enough to save a person. It is sufficient, however, according to chapter 1, verse 20, to render every person guilty and without excuse. This general revelation is enough to make you guilty and without excuses, it says in verse 20. Paul will further say in verse 23 in this chapter that in spite of general revelation, men still choose to worship the rocks, the trees, the moon, and the man-made gods while ignoring, suppressing, silencing the voice of their conscience. Remember it says there in verse 18? Suppressing the truth. Hiding it. Rather than revealing which is to open, uncover, they're suppressing, they're covering it back up. Instead, they work hard to cover up the truth about him, and in soul living, they also violate their own conscience and sin at will. Also, I believe, personally, from Scripture and the teachings of it, that anyone anywhere in the world who sees creation and believes in a creator who listens to conscience and desires to unburden their guilt, who does not turn to false gods, evil spirits, or nature itself, will have the necessary special revelation provided by God to allow them to hear the gospel and believe. John MacArthur writes it this way, No matter how little spiritual light a person may have, God guarantees that any person who sincerely seeks him will find him. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The purpose of general revelation is to get us to special revelation. That individual who is under deep conviction and guilt, who has no excuse, if they truly desire to know God, God will send them some special revelation so they can know God. Paul makes it even clearer that general revelation is not enough for salvation. He says that there must be special revelation through God's word, far apart from biblical truth. No one can be saved. He said in Romans 10, verse 13 and 14, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Down to verse 17 in chapter 10. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, special revelation. Now, this, I'll be honest with you, this forms a mystery in Scripture of divine election, and yet you have the free will of man. We know from Ephesians chapter 1, whosoever, I'm sorry, um, before the foundations of the world, he has chosen you. You can't deny election. It's there. Before the foundations, he has chosen you. But in that same chapter, as you get down to verse 13, in him you also trusted. I can't totally explain that, but I know this. 
He chose me, but yet he made me willing to trust in him. That is a mystery. But within the general revelation and special revelation, salvation is possible to the person who turns to Christ in faith and belief that he died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the whole world. Repent and believe. So you have, so how's the wrath of God revealed? General revelation and special revelation. Which brings us to our next question. Where is the wrath of God directed? He says it's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is a refers to rebellion, uh, dishonor, irreverence, profanity towards God, man's defective relationship with God, a lack of reverence, of devotion, of worship, ungodliness as it is directed towards God. Against its wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is toward men. A defective relationship with men is that self. We, we live in a culture. We live in a world that isn't any less evil than the previous centuries. In fact, progressively is getting worse. We're self-centered. We're narcissistic in our behavior. We believe in the entitlement mentality. It's all about me. I'm the center of the universe. I thought it was interesting when you think of the great command, when the scribe came to Jesus and he said, you know, I, I discern that you're a great teacher. Or you try to puff him up a little bit. That's how he normally talked to other people, not affecting Christ, of course. But I perceive you're a great teacher. What is the great commandment? And, of course, Christ's answer to him was, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ungodliness, a defective relationship with God. Unrighteousness, a a defective relationship with man. Totally contradicts the great command. It's revealed, where is the wrath of God directed, I'm sorry, toward ungodliness and unrighteousness. I want to conclude. I rewrote this twice, actually three times. And what I just gave you was my introduction. And I, kind of, I finally figured out is that's got to be the message. So this is the conclusion. Okay? This is the conclusion to this. The willful blindness of the unbeliever, verses 18 to 20. He chooses to suppress the truth. To hold down the truth, to cover it up keep it out of sight. And it's not that they didn't know the truth, but they chose to suppress the truth. An alternative translation would go something like this, who keep truth imprisoned in their wickedness. The willful blindness of the unbeliever of the heathen, they choose to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the carnality. That's, you talk about an attribute of man, we're innately carnal. <laughs> We're innately selfish. We're innately narcissistic. It's all about us. 
They choose to suppress the truth. Then in verse 19, they choose to ignore the truth. Of course, that's the conscience. The conscience is accusing or excusing there in verse 15, chapter 2. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternating, excusing, or else accusing them. They ignore their conscience. They suppress the truth. They ignore the truth, their carnality, their conscience, and they choose, they, they, they choose to deny the truth of creation. To look at, to sense, to feel creation demands a creator. And to ignore that is, is to deny the fact of the truth. So that's why we have evolution. There's got to be some explanation because even the unsaved man understands there's some explanation for why creation is here. It demands something. It demands a creator. And so they deny the truth. And I already shared this with you, but Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the second half says, And the firmament shows the work of his hands. It demands a creator. So they choose to suppress, to ignore, deny the truth. Now, so I'm thinking. I'm working through this, and I'm thinking, okay, that, I, I, don't, I hope you understand it, but I felt like I came, come away, I understand but give me an illustration. Give me something that helps this come alive, come home. Is, is there any? I think I got one. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. A true story. I'm going to have to read it. The truth may be imprisoned, ignored, or even denied. But the truth of God's creation shouts the news of a creator, and the conscience of man whispers that there is a holy standard man must follow. Some will listen to heavens as they declare the glory of the firmament, or they may listen to their conscience as it bears witness against them, and be poised to hear further revelation from God which leads to salvation. That's all we've been talking about. One such person was a young girl by the name of Helen Keller. Listen, Helen soon after birth lost the ability to see, hear, and speak. It's impossible for us to imagine the horror of that little girl who grew up in a dark and silent world, as if sealed in a box or locked away in a closet. It's hard to con the, the concept of what was going on in that little kid's mind. However, as you may know, a, a dedicated teacher named Ann Sullivan came into Helen's life and refused to be pushed away. Ann Sullivan slowly, painstakingly, taught Helen Keller to communicate by pressing into the palm of her hand the alphabet. Again, it is mind-boggling that this little child, Helen, could even understand what the pressing meant. She couldn't speak. She couldn't hear. She couldn't see. However, for more than two years, Ann Sullivan was dedicated to teaching Helen Keller how to communicate. She persistently taught Helen letters and words. Finally, after two years, the light dawned, so to speak, and Helen connected the pressing of her hand with reality. She quickly learned how to communicate back 
as well as to receive more and more information. Once she learned how to communicate, she became a sponge, literally. She was just soaking up information and soaking up words, what they meant. She's blind, she cannot speak, and she cannot hear. So, Anne Sullivan then sent for a preacher the gospel. The preacher was brought in, and he, through Anne's interpretation, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with Helen Keller. As he was sharing it with her, she broke, that is, Helen broke into a, a, a huge smile. She quickly communicated back to the, the startling words, I've known about him for a long time. I just didn't know his name. How is that possible? General revelation? Conscience? And creation. She couldn't see it. She could not uh, hear it, but she could feel it. Even in her blindness, she knew their creation demanded a creator. General Revelation told Helen Keller that there was a created world, even though she could not see it. She could, however, feel it, breathe it, touch it. Her conscience also told her when her actions were sinful. She believed that General Revelation and the special revelation that came in the form of the gospel message both introduced her to the Savior and she believed that message and was saved. See, she had known about God, but now she knew his name. The wrath of God is revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the, the, the testimony of it, the power of it. We pray, Father, that we, we ourselves have not, at least up to this point, experienced your wrath. And because of Christ, we will not experience your wrath for our sin. Thank you, God, that Christ exhausted your wrath. But, Lord, we also pray that there may be here individuals this morning who do not know Christ, that in your mercy and your grace you have restrained yourself, but yet their judgment day is coming. And, Father, I pray that their conscience, even as they viewed creation, and now they've heard the living word, may come to Christ today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and say, Pastor Ken, I, I'm not saved. I don't know Christ, but I'd like someone to show me from the Word of God how I can be saved. Is there anyone like that? Thank you, God, for the truth of your Word. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for the life-changing power that is within it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.